So this is Ruth, chapter 3. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you, where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. "'Who are you?' he asked. "'I'm your servant Ruth,' she said. "'Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family.' "'The Lord bless you, my daughter,' he replied. "'This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. "'You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor.' And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning." So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, No one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, Bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Um, I know most people here. If I've not met you, my name's Johnny. I'm one of the pastors here at the Gate Other Johnny as well. He's not here, so confusing, but hey, I'm Johnny. Um, so I, uh, I switched on um, the, uh, the car radio the day. I don't really listen to the radio uh, much in the car, but I switched it on, and there was this panel discussion about modern romantic relationships. And on the panel, there was some university academic, I don't know, with a PhD in dating or something, uh, alongside the great relationships expert of our time, Alexandra Kane from Love Island. I, didn't, I mean, I have no idea who she is. You might know of her. But anyway, they were discussing dating. And one thing they kept on coming back to in their discussion was that people have such a vast array of dating options nowadays. Uh, you know, back in the day, your options for marriage were effectively who lived on your street. Nowadays, you can basically swipe through your whole city, if not the world, in order to find your perfect match. And, and this, you know, on the face of it, seems like a, a good thing. <clears throat> but um, basically, the, uh, the, the academic or Dr. Rada, whatever her name was. Dr. Rada said this about, about this phenomenon. She said, you'd think with all of this choice, we'd be more satisfied in relationships. But it's the opposite. With many options at our fingertips, we can't get rid of the question, um, is the grass greener on the other side? Is there someone else better out there for me? 
Well, relationships of all kinds are a big theme in the book of Ruth. We've been going through the book of Ruth for a couple of weeks. Uh, Just think about Ruth and Naomi. That, That relationship is integral to the whole book, isn't it? And today's chapter is all about a romantic relationship between Boaz and Ruth. But as we'll see today, these two are not burdened by that question of there being greener grass somewhere around the corner. No, they're all about commitment to each other at any cost. Think back a little bit to what we've seen so far. This might be helpful if, if this is the first time you've been with us during Ruth. This is a little kind of, kind of overhaul of what we've, overview of what we've seen so far. Back in chapter one, Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, went to live in Moab, a country which worshipped false gods, um, not, not the God of the Bible, but she went there with her husband Elimelech because of famine in Bethlehem. There was no food. Okay, so she went there and there she had two sons who married women from that country, Ruth, and Orpah. But then disaster struck. Elimelech died and her two sons died, leaving Naomi, Ruth and Orpah grieving and vulnerable in a very uh, patriarchal society. And so in an act of love, Naomi says, you know what, I'm going to go back to Bethlehem, um, back to my homeland, but you two, in in order for you to be looked after where the grass really is greener for you, you stay here so you can remarry in your homeland, securing yourself financial and physical protection. And you know what, that's exactly what Orpah did. But not Ruth. She'd become a follower of Naomi's God, the God of the Bible. And so Ruth's response to her mother-in-law would have baffled those radio talk show hosts and indeed us in our culture. She said this to Naomi in chapter 1, Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Unswerving commitment. Her relationship with her mother-in-law was rooted in something far bigger than where she'd find the greenest grass. She followed Naomi back to her mother-in-law's hometown of Bethlehem, where there was no food, and as an immigrant in that, in those times, she would have been poor and a social outcast from the beginning. Here is someone whose encounter with the true and living God had such a radical effect on her relationships that she chose what was harder in order to love and serve those God had put around her. And just so you know where we're headed today, we're going to see exactly the same about how our encounter with God in the Lord Jesus Christ leads to for us to do exactly the same thing in our relationships. But just to kind of recall what happened in chapter 2, especially if you if you weren't here, basically Naomi went back to, to Bethlehem with Ruth, and then Ruth went out to work in order to find some, some cash for the fam, right? Like, so she's, she's gone to this farm, and the farm owner happened to be a godly man who protected Ruth and provided for her. So we get this like sense that, oh, is this like, is this a kind of romance starting here? You kind of like start to see the, the seeds of, of what's happening because we love this guy Boaz. He's amazing. He's like Prince Charming on steroids in this, in this story. We all, we're all like rooting for him to get together with Ruth. But at the end of chapter two, do you know what? There's, there's not so much as, you know, a hint of a coffee date or anything. <clears throat> but things change pretty quickly, right? We've all seen EastEnders. And, and, and today we're, we're in chapter 3, so just have a look down. If you've got your Bibles open, that'll be helpful. If you just look down, we start from the uh, first couple of verses in chapter 3. One day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you'll be well provided for. Now Boaz, 
with whose woman you have worked is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Right, so this budding romance isn't lost on Naomi. She's at home teasing Ruth, singing, you know, can you feel the love tonight? But all the while, she sees God's sovereign hand in this. She mentions there, doesn't see that, 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 that Boaz is a relative of the family. Now that's really important. In chapter 2, verses 20, we'll see this term again later in our chapter. We find out that Boaz is one of the family's guardian redeemers. Okay, that's a, such an important term for what's going on here. So I'm just going to explain that. Um, for the rest of the story. So basically God had given laws to his Old Testament people to protect women and the family property after a husband's death. And, and, and if this happened, the way it would work is that the widow and her family would look to their family's guardian redeemer, or my translation, family liberator, to buy the family property and take on all of the family duties. So as a relative of, of Naomi's late husband, Elimelech, basically Boaz would have to buy Elimelech's property, marry Ruth, and look after Naomi. Not only that, if he and Ruth had a child, and there was a future dispute about that property, the courts would always side with the child. And so being a, a, a family liberator, being a guardian redeemer, came at great personal cost. It was a risky business. And there was no actual obligation on the man to do that. It would, he'd be looked down on if he didn't, but there was no actual obligation. It was risky. But this Boaz is a good egg, right? And Naomi's kind of like rubbing her hands together. She's already like thinking about what color dress the mother of the bride is going to have or whether to have a hat or a fascinator or whatever it is. You know, here's God's answer to their plight. Boaz is their hope of a better future. So they hatch a plan. Look at verses three and four. Naomi says this to Ruth, wash. <laughs> put on perfume and get dressed in your best clothes then go down to the threshing floor but don't let him know that you're there until he's finished eating and drinking when he lies down note the place he's lying then go and uncover his feet and lie down he'll tell you what to do right so firstly Naomi's plan is this have a wash girl right go and get your glad rags on put on your Calvin Klein eau de parfum whatever it is and get yourself down to Boaz's post-harvest house party and you might be thinking this is terrible that Ruth would only be accepted, you know, on the basis of her, of her kind of looking good. But, you know, at some level, we all know there's a place for this, right? <laughs> when I went down to Exeter to ask Joanna out, I didn't crash out of bed without a shower, heading off to the station with my bedhead, bad breath, my slobs on. And we're like, hey, fancy giving this a go? No, I would have been told to jog on, and rightly so. Okay, so Naomi tells to Ruth to spruce up a bit. And then she gives her the plan, admittedly a very odd and risky plan but Ruth is to follow Boaz to wherever he settles for the night uncover his feet as you do and lie down there it's odd sure enough verse 6 Naomi heads off to the farm and waits for Boaz and it's what happens next this midnight meeting between Ruth and Boaz is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning because in this passage we're about to see we see much of God's design for relationships. And we're going to look at seven traits of relationships with God at the centre. It's not an exhaustive list. It's not like, hey, you know, here's my tick list. If I've ticked it off, then I'm godly in my relationships. And if I don't, then I'm not. No, no it's, not, it's, it's not that at all. It's just that we see seven things in this particular passage in a relationship with God at the centre, which are, which are really helpful for us. 
Now, the context here is romantic relationships, right? I think we, we get that. And so that element of the passage is going to inform what we look at. And yet, let me just acknowledge three things before we look at that part of the passage. The first is that there are people here for whom this is going to be a, you know, a really painful thing to talk about. With singleness, it may, have, may well have brought suffering. It often does. It's, it's, it's just something I want to acknowledge up front, that talking about romantic relationships is not just something we can do flippantly. I just want to acknowledge that up front. But secondly, and this is helpful, almost all, I think all, but almost all, of these traits that we see in godly relationships can be applied to non-romantic relationships. Friendships, church relationships, family relationships. I mean, much of what we see in Ruth and how she relates to Boaz here, we've actually seen already in how she relates to Naomi. Okay, so there's so much overlap, although the context here is romantic relationships. The last thing I want to acknowledge, and this is important just to kind of just get out of the way before we start. Some of you might be aware of all the kind of commentators like hoo-ha about this passage. But what we read here in this midnight meeting, we must not read our social and cultural context into, right? So Boaz is not stumbling black from Broad Street drunk, and then you've got like Naomi swiping through on Tinder waiting to have some kind of drunken sexual encounter in the grain pile. That's not what's happening at all. That's to read our situation into this text. These are two people who have shown themselves to love God and who want to begin a godly marriage. Okay, so that aside, done. Let's read from verse 7 onwards. We'll read a little part of this, of this, uh, of this passage. So when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. Well, I'm, I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble, of noble character. Right, so as I say, if you're a note taker, we're going to see seven traits um, of, a, of, of relationships with God at the centre. When I say godly, that's all I mean. Godly just means placing God at, God at the centre. So the first, the first trait is that they're risky. Don't underestimate what Ruth is doing here. Do you see verse 7? Ruth approached quietly. Okay, she knows what this is going to look like to someone who sees her. She knows how Boaz himself might respond. She might get thrown out and labelled all sorts for what she's about to do here. Looks like she's trying it on, right? She risks losing her job, her reputation on this farm. And they've got nothing at home. You know, this might come at great cost to her. It's risky. But you may actually have missed what's actually going on here. Ruth's not asking the guy out. She's not asking for a coffee date. She's proposing marriage. Outright. Look at verse 9. She says, spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. 
Now that word, that phrase, corner of your garment, is the same word in Hebrew as when the Bible calls us to take refuge under God's wings. She's saying, marry me. I want to find refuge from my despair in you, our family redeemer, our family liberator. You know, people laugh when they find out that I'd only met Joanna once when I went to Exeter and basically took her for coffee and said, I want to explore the possibility of marriage with you. But Ruth's got one further, right? She just asked, the, she just asked him to marry her, just outright. She's risked a lot by proposing on the spot. Her hope of a future, financial security, not to mention her heartbreaking. But all godly relationships are risky. Telling someone that you like them Deep friendship, pursuing deep friendship with people, you risk being rejected. It's kind of easier to let things roll on, just let them, let them happen. That's why, that's why flirting is such a big deal in our culture. You're kind of looking for signals that the other person also likes you instead of just being up front with them. Particularly men can do great damage to women by keeping them guessing about how they feel about them. So whether we're pursuing a romantic relationship or a deep friendship with someone, godliness means putting ourselves and indeed our hearts on the line. It's risky. That's the first one. Number two, relationships centering on God are servant-hearted. Verse 9, Ruth says, I am your servant, Ruth. This servant-heartedness is, you might have, Again, this needs a bit of explaining, but the servant-heartedness is the sentiment behind lying at and uncovering Boaz's feet. It is a cultural thing. So, effectively, she's saying, listen, I'm here to serve. I'm your servant. Ruth wasn't asking, can I find a better option where the grass is greener? Or, do you know what, Boaz, let's give this a go until a better option comes around the corner. No, she's saying the same to Boaz as she said to Naomi. Where you go, I go. Your people will be my people. Essentially, at great cost to me, I am yours. I am yours. But so often in romantic relationships, we put off marriage because a better option might be around the corner. Our natural disposition, natural disposition is nothing like Ruth's. It's not, I'm here to serve you, to commit to you, to, to love you, come what may. We're in our, you know, in our friendships too, we kind of go with Whichever people are best suited to us, where we can, where we can basically enjoy hanging out, no cost to ourselves. But you know what? That's not loving someone else. That's just a reflection of your love for yourself, of ourselves. That's what we do, isn't it? That's our second trait of a godly relationship. They're servant-hearted. Number three, godly relationships are honourable. They show honour. Naomi's trembling at this point at how Boaz is going to respond to this proposal. Remember that she is a social outcast. With nothing in her hands to bring this rich landowner. The odds are stacked against her. But look how Baba speaks to this woman in verse, tw- verse 10. The Lord bless you, my daughter. Her fears just disappear. He's honourable. He's not manipulative or abusive or condescending. He's kind. Contrast this with our romantic games of treat and mean, keep them keen. Or in our pornified society, women and even secondary school girls are emotionally manipulated into performing depraved acts of sexual submission in order to feel loved or approved. The Lord bless you, my daughter. That's a man. 
He shows her honour and respect. Godly relationships and friendships of all kinds show honour to the other person. Number four, relationships with God at the centre prioritise character. Baba says this, this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. Boaz is an older guy. That might be news to you. He's probably 45, maybe 50. Ruth could have gone after the younger men, but Boaz's godliness, his sacrificial provision for and protection of Ruth has drawn Ruth to him. And such a godly man is himself drawn to Ruth's noble character. He notes her sacrificial love in coming to this foreign land to protect Naomi. And now this, pursuing him, instead of the good-looking guys down the road, the younger guys, his, 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 his works on the, on the farm. Again, with our view that basically the main thing in relationship should be how the person looks or that our friend should basically be like us. This is countercultural. Good looks fade. Character in the Christian life grows stronger and stronger. In the realm of friendships, we do well to have a good set of godly friends, not as a holy huddle, but just a good set of godly friends to, to love us, to encourage us in the joy of the gospel and challenge us where, when we need it. As for romantic relationships, well, if you're thinking, Do you know, one day I want to be married, well, what kind of person are you looking for? The guy who's, who's charming, but who's always suggesting hanging out on a Sunday morning, just the two of you? Or the girl who looks good but challenges the Bible whenever it doesn't conform to her own worldview? No. If God is who matters most to us, then we should most highly prioritise character. I'm not saying there's no place for looks. We need to be attracted to one another. But there's a priority there of character in in a godly relationship. Number four, number five. Relations with God at the centre do what's right and good. Let's read from verse 11. Boaz says this, And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you're a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. And at this point, we're watching our screens being like, No! Boaz! We want Boaz, right? This is like, no. This is not what we were expecting. But Boaz doesn't have a personal agenda knowing that there's a closer relative to the family, in keeping with God's law, he wants to do what is right and good. And do you know what? We're going to see how this goes in chapter 4 next week. But for now, ask yourself this. In my life and in my relationships, do I pursue the right thing? Or do I pursue the thing that basically I want? Do I, do I, do I pursue what is right and go- good and God honouring and dutiful or do I basically go with what I feel? That's what I want to do, so I'm going to do it. People who love God in godly relationships don't just do what suits, but do what's right and good. And you know what? Often that's the harder thing to do. Number five, number six. Relationships with God at the centre are self-sacrificial. Look at verse 13. Boaz says, stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to, that's this other bloke, right? If he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. 
Boaz assures Ruth that no matter what, someone is going to redeem you, right? If this other guy won't do it, I will. Boaz is willing to sacrifice his own money to buy the family property and his own comfort to marry Ruth and his own comfort to take on Naomi, by now an elderly woman. Ultimately, this is the height of Boaz's and indeed any man's masculinity. He takes responsibility at great cost to himself to look after others. He uses his position in this scenario of, of wealth and, and, and status to look after the most vulnerable and protect them and do his duty. He's a man. Our society is full of little boys running around thinking they're men because they manipulate women or abuse them with power or hold knives or shoot guns. They're not men. Here's a man. And here's what he says, no matter what, I'll lay my life down for you. I'll say no to myself and yes to you for the rest of your life. And it's exactly the same with good friendships. Godly relationships of all kind are self-sacrificial. Number seven, final one. Godly relationships are pure. They're pure. Verse 14. In case there was any doubt about what was going on here. So she lay at his feet. Notice the most unsexy place you could lie, right? Until morning. But got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. See, Boaz knew what this looked like. <laughs> Boaz knew the commentators 2,000 years on would be discussing, was this a sex scene or was it not? And he's saying, no, 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 it wasn't that. It wasn't that. And so make sure you, you, you go before you are recognized. Stay here, be protected, but go before anyone sees you because it wasn't what it looked like. Do you know what? It would have been so easy at this point to be like, it looks like we're going to get married, right? Well, why don't we just, why don't we just sleep together? Or maybe just some foreplay? Or do you know what? Why don't you just come and have a cuddle? Why don't we just like sleep in each other's arms for the rest of the night? No! This relationship has God's will at the center. And God's will is for physical intimacy and sex to be enjoyed in marriage. So placing God at the center means not pushing those boundaries, but acting in purity. So those are our seven traits. Again, not an exhaustive list, just what we see here. So the obvious question is this. Where do Ruth and Boaz challenge you in your relationships and your friendships? Perhaps you're married and you're just lazy with your wife. You don't pursue her. But you know what? You feel, I'm not serving my husband in any particular way. Or maybe you're considering dating someone or you like someone, but you're too scared just to be up front with them because you're worried about self-preservation. You're worried about your own heart. Maybe you avoid deep friendships in community group or in church or with family because it's going to hurt too much when they see you for who you are or what you've done. Maybe you're engaged and you can constantly be found all over each other on a bed or you're sleeping with each other already because, you know, we're engaged. We're going to be married. Well, do you know what? In your friendships, maybe you're just selfish. You just do whatever suits you. Well, wherever the challenge is for you, I want you to notice something about relationships with God at the center. If you've drifted off, now's the time to drift back in. Relationships with God at the center all involve denying yourself to serve the other person. It, It all involves denying yourself to serve 
the other person. Our God is a God who denies himself in order to serve others. He's given himself to us in creation. Even after we rejected him, he shared himself fully in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and by dying for our sin on the cross at the ultimate cost to himself. Being like God means doing the harder thing. By denying ourselves, it means doing the thing that doesn't come naturally to us. Looking out for number one. In relationships and friendships, it means not using other people to serve my relational needs or my physical needs. Or to get what I want from it. That's why we're fixated on there being someone better out there. Because maybe someone will serve me better. Rather than how can I serve you better? That's why in community group, we just can't be bothered with that person because they're annoying. Don't read into that, my community group. Just thought that now. But Boaz and Ruth, right, in their, in their relationship together, but also in their relationship with other people, Naomi, Boaz's colleagues, they give us an example, don't they, of what the Lord Jesus Christ would later say to his followers, to us this morning, that whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life will save it. So we looked at in Mark recently, right? Tim Keller, a guy in America, says this, similar thing, if you surrender your version of the good life to God, God will give it back to you. If you give up serving yourself and begin to serve others, God will show you that in being like him in that way, that is where relational satisfaction can be found. So the obvious question is, have you surrendered your version of the good life to God? Have you done that? Given up serving yourself in order to set yourself on a course of serving others in whatever relationship that might be. I mean, let's face it, who here can actually be like, yep, me, I've done that. I've surrendered everything to God. My life now exists solely for him and for the good of others. Then we walk out the door and we're like, you know, serving ourselves already. Where's lunch? Being angsty. That's us, isn't it? No one here can say, that's me. Perhaps you're thinking, do you know what? This is the first time I've even heard of this radical kind of overhaul of relationships. I've never, never heard anything like this. I've just done what I've won. I've, I've slept with who I want. I've invested in who I want. Or maybe you've heard this many times before, but you're, you're sat there thinking, do you know what? I've forgotten this. I'm not serving my spouse. Or to be honest, when others at church annoy me, I just can't be bothered with them. Just... Let go and just say whatever I want. Just get annoyed. Perhaps you're engaged again and physically you're already beginning to act like you're married. Or, or maybe, maybe you're, you're angry because, do you know what? God hasn't bought you your Boaz or your Ruth. You know, you could be feeling at this point a load of things as we finish this story. But perhaps one of those things that you're feeling, just a little bit, you might have a sense of despair. A sense of despair at yourself, at your situation, at whatever. And you know what? The good news is that we've called this series Hope Through Despair. Because this book, the book of Ruth, is all about how God brings us hope through the despair of our sin, our suffering, and our circumstances. And here in chapter 3, we see not only God's hope for Ruth and Naomi, but we see God's hope for us in our own despair. 
Verse 15, I think, will give us a little clue as to what this is all about. Have a look at that. Boaz also said, right, he's done all this, right? And then he said, Boaz also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When Ruth did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. And you're like, what's that got to do with God bringing me hope in my, in my scenario? But you've got to remember that this story started with famine. The story started with famine, of hunger. Boaz isn't only taking care of Ruth and Naomi's legal and social standing by becoming their family liberator, he's also provided for their every needs, filling their plate with more grain than they could ever have dreamt of when they came to Bethlehem. Let me state the story of Ruth explicitly. God meets every need of a sinful, despairing and empty-handed person through the godly and righteous actions and self-sacrifice of one man. Boaz. Sound familiar? With our New Testament hats on? It reminds us, of course, doesn't it, of Ruth, sorry, spoiler alert, Ruth and Boaz's great, 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 great grandson, who was also born in Bethlehem, Jesus Christ, and how he meets our every need. The story of Ruth looks forward to God's plan to meet every need of sinful, broken, and empty-handed people through the righteous actions and self-sacrifice of one man, Jesus Christ, our true and better Boaz. Just as Ruth falls at Boaz's feet with nothing to offer the rich landowner, we fall at Jesus' feet with nothing to offer the owner of all the universe. Just as Ruth thought that Boaz would not treat her kindly, so too do we in our despair think, this God cannot treat me kindly. And just as Boaz says to Ruth, the Lord bless you, my daughter, so too does Jesus say to us at his feet, the Lord bless you, my daughter, my son. Just as Boaz gave up his wealth to buy the family property, Jesus gave up his heavenly wealth to enter our world. Just as Boaz risked losing that property to a future child, Jesus made us children and then willingly gave us his whole heavenly property at no charge to us. Just as Boaz took on the burden of responsibility for Ruth and Naomi at great cost to himself, so too does Jesus take the burden of our sin before God at great cost to himself by dying on the cross for our sins. Just as Boaz welcomed a woman from a nation who turned their backs on God, so too does Jesus unite himself to people like you and me who, spiritually speaking, turned ourselves, our backs on God and on each other in our relationships. Just as Boaz said yes to spread his garment over an unlikely bride, so too does Jesus Christ clothe us, his unlikely bride, with his perfect righteousness. Just as Boaz was Ruth and Naomi's hope of a better future. So too is Jesus Christ our only hope of a better future to come in his coming kingdom. In almost every way, Boaz foreshadows Jesus Christ, our guardian redeemer, our family liberator, who sets us, his children, free, his bride, the church, And all those who come to his feet like Ruth and ask Jesus, 
Will you spread your garment over me so that I might find refuge from my sin and my suffering and my circumstances since you are my redeemer? For all those who do that this morning or have done so before, this morning Jesus echoes Boaz's words in verse 13. As surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. For those despairing in the messiness and ungodliness of their relationships, the first lesson of the book of Ruth is not. Do you know what? I've just got to be more like Boaz. The first lesson of this book is that you're not like Boaz. Jesus is the true and better Boaz for you. He's done it for you. For those despairing in their singleness, the lesson of the book of Ruth isn't, don't worry, God's going to bring you your Boaz. No, no, it's don't fear, little one. Your Boaz has come and he's died for you and he loves you and his name is Jesus Christ. For those like Naomi, lonely and elderly, the true and better Boaz, Jesus Christ, has come for you and he's promised to be with you now into eternity. See, here's the first lesson of Ruth. Whoever you are, whatever your pain, whatever your sin, your Boaz has come, Jesus Christ, and he's taken on himself the burden of that sin and despair that we all carry. He's given you everything and he's promised to never leave you. But as we close, and I am closing, it's in this truth, it's in this, it's in the safety of the garment of righteousness that Christ has wrapped us in, that we are set free to see and learn from Ruth and Boaz's relationship. Not to be condemned by them, but to see them and see their sacrificial model, the way they serve each other. We see two people, don't we, who've encountered God and who now live, for we came, with the mind of Christ. That's what we see in these two people. And likewise, to all who have encountered God in Jesus Christ and his grace to us. The Apostle Paul writes this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mind as Christ Jesus, who took the nature of a servant. So let me just address a few different contingents in our, in our church. Husbands, have the same mind as Christ Jesus for your wife. When he laid down his rights, his comfort, his life for her. When you get home from work, know that your work's only just begun. Know that your work's only just begun to know her, to ask about her, to pursue her heart, to lighten her load by making dinner, by bathing the kids, whatever it is. And when she sins against you, have the same mind as Christ by bearing that sin and responding in grace. Let there be no passive aggression. Serve her. Put your heart on the line by asking her difficult questions about her life with Jesus. Husbands have the same mind as Jesus Christ, our true and better Boaz. Wives, too, have the same mind as Jesus Christ. Don't, don't be sat there thinking, I hope he's listening. And when we get home, you better be more like Boaz. No, your Boaz has come. Jesus is for you what your husband isn't. Jesus makes up for your husband's every sin and failing. 
Rest in your Jesus. Have the same mind as Christ. Serve your husband as Christ served you and serve others. To, to single people, whether content or, or suffering, to those dating, engaged people, have the same mind as Christ. Men particularly, do you take responsibility as Christ took responsibility for you? Take responsibility in church, in community group, in friendships? Are you the type of guy who a woman who places God at the centre of her life is going to be drawn to? Do you choose what's hardest in denying yourself? Will you be ready to deny yourself and your physical urges until marriage? Or maybe even now, if you're dating or engaged and you've already been there, will you be a man and repent to her? Will you ask her forgiveness? Will you renew your commitment to her over yourself? Will you do that face-to-face rather than by text? Will you do that today? Woman. Beloved daughters of God, in your relationships, have the same mind as Christ. Know this about God, that he cherishes you perfectly, regardless of how you feel or how you feel you stack up in terms of the way you look or you don't. You're precious. You're really precious to him. And he's given you every blessing in Jesus Christ. Will you surrender your life to him to pursue only what's right and what's good. If you're single and struggling with that singleness, will you prayerfully entrust your singleness to that God who loves you? To trust him. To trust him that singleness actually is better than a relationship with a guy who doesn't know Jesus, doesn't love him, or doesn't love him enough to serve you with his hands, with his heart, with his words. Let me say something really hard. You know, I know how this, I can't say this as a married man, I can't say this without maybe offending, I don't know, but it's true. That singleness in relationship with your true and better Boaz, Jesus Christ, is far greater than being with or marrying an ungodly man who's controlling, abusive, or just passive towards God. You're so loved in Jesus Christ, and that, I know, doesn't take away some of the hardship, but just frees you just to think of how much Jesus is for you and what he's done for you. Finally, leaving romantic relationships completely behind to all of us in Christ Jesus. In your relationships with one another, have the same mind as Christ, our true and better Boaz, who protects and pursues the vulnerable and the weak and the lonely and the isolated people in church. Do you do that? Take a risk by inviting them over. Have you cooked dinner? Who haven't you cooked dinner for? As Christ didn't spare his life, spare no expense in lavishing on people the kindness that God has lavished on you. Pursue deep relationships with one another. Being honest about your struggles and your sin like Boaz and ultimately Jesus. Share your money and your property with people to meet needs. And above all, love one another as Christ loved us, his unlikely bride. Shall I pray? Heavenly Father, we tremble at the uh, 
at, 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 at what your word calls us to do as those in Christ. We know we are saved by grace and grace alone, and yet, Father, completely free of conviction and condemnation, Father, we ask that we would be a church who moves towards this in our relationships. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would do two things. I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit would comfort now where comfort is needed. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that your Holy Spirit would convict now where conviction is needed. Father, protect us as a church as the enemy prowls like a lion wanting to devour us in our relationships. Father God, we pray that this little picture of Boaz and Ruth that we would get great comfort from as we see Jesus Christ and his relationship to us, his people. Father, let that be the motivation. That means that we want to see this happen more and more in our lives, in our church, in our relationships. And we pray that ultimately for Jesus Christ's name and his glory. Amen.